stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present. And also recognize that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance, and resilience for First Nations communities. This week on All the Best, we're bringing you a story about accidentally falling into activism. This is a concept I kind of relate to. There have been multiple instances where I, as a Sri Lankan Tamil person who is also queer, have been seen as a representative for my entire community. Maybe I'm the first queer South Asian someone has met, or just the only person from either of these groups at an event. Regardless, it often results in my stumbling into the role of advocate for people like me. It's an unintentional, but possibly inevitable, aspect of my identity. The impetus for activism is often personal experience, and this can range depending on the person. For Carol DeBar, it was just about where she lived. Carol was one of the 300 people arrested during the campaign against the Row 8 extension of Row Highway in Western Australia, a campaign that was actually successful in stopping the planned destruction of wetlands in the area. This week, we're bringing you the full story of how Carol went from social worker to wetland warrior. Row 8 was a planned five-kilometre extension of the Row Highway that would have driven through precious wetlands and untouched bush in the Perth metropolitan area, but it was delayed and eventually stopped in 2017 by a huge community action. It was probably about 400 metres across a strip of natural bush. It had never been touched. It was beautiful in there. It was full of grass trees and bobtails and bandicoots and uh, gum trees and wattle. And in spring, it was full of wild wisteria. It was just a stunning piece of bush. I could see on the map when I bought the place that there was this strip of green opposite the house. And so I asked the previous owners what that was. And they said, oh, that's the row eight, but it'll never be built. It's been there since 1965. It's just not going to happen. Carol DeBar is a Fremantle social worker and she describes herself as an accidental activist. Carol lives right next to that planned freeway and I found her story inspiring, so maybe you will too. Poet Nandi Chinna was also there. Kitchen meeting. The fluorescent light globes bleach our faces. Insects beat against the fly screen with clattering percussion flocking to this simulcra of moon. Frogs click and moan, adding their voices to our agenda of fundraising, lobbying, rallies, our plans to save the swamp. The government report claims that the highway design will improve upon nature. And we hold our meetings week after week, trying to comprehend that there could be better ideas than water algae and tadpoles that can shapeshift into frogs. 
the road to nowhere, that row eight highway through five kilometres of untouched bushland and precious wetlands inland from Fremantle. And the community started getting active about stopping this, so I got involved with the campaign. I'd go to the rallies, I'd sign petitions. As the years rolled on closer, I um, started to get more involved with door knocking. And then the Liberal government at the time, Colin Barnett's government, decided the year before the election in 2017 that they had federal funding earmarked for this project and they were going ahead with it. And the Save Billia Wetlands organisation, which I'd been involved with for many years, suddenly became huge. Thousands of people joined, they had a membership, they got themselves together, they got organised. You got a sign out there saying, Lizards Crossing. <laughs> There's sort of a thread within all of this, which is about the animals, isn't it? That people got motivated because they knew that this is a rich, biodiverse area and all of that life was threatened. The Liberal Party seemed to think that putting a highway, a four-lane highway, through to, between two lakes and a wetland area was not going to destroy it. There's lizards and bandicoots and birds and turtles, long-necked turtles. You know, it's, it's rich. And the bush opposite me was full of bandicoots. So what they did, because there was such a, a backlash against the animals that were being destroyed, they decided to move the bandicoots they were catching the bandicoots overnight in the traps and they'd go in in the morning and they would relocate them to another area. Well, we found out this area was probably about 50 k's down near Mandurah somewhere. A lot of them were dying. They were dead in the traps in the morning. People were seeing them being rough-handled. People were following them in the trucks and watching where they were being relocated. Um, people who knew about bandicoots knew they wouldn't survive in that area. They would be attacked by local bandicoots. So um, that started a whole campaign of a woman called Phoebe Cork who used to sit outside the front of my house in a station wagon and she started on her own tracking these guys. So by the end of the four months there was about 70 or 80 people getting up at dawn all the way along the track and watching these guys. They were being watched every second of every movement they made. And then there was articles written and there, it was a highly organised campaign. That was just for the bandicoots. And what you're describing there is the growth of a movement. In that four months, by the end of the campaign, which started off slowly over the years, and by the end of 2016, it just grew. People came out of the woodwork. It captured, it was on the news constantly. People knew about it. There was signage everywhere. Save Billia Wetlands and myself as a person who would be affected by the highway, took them to court as the co-complainant. And we took them to court three times. The first time we won and they appealed and, and we lost that one. The second time we lost, we lost the third time as well. But the Belia Wetlands campaign raised thousands of dollars to do this legal action. Kate Kelly, she was the person that brought Save Billia Wetlands together. She approached me and asked if I would um, go co-complainant you know, explain that it's possible that I might have been up for court costs and liable for them and that there was a risk involved. So I, I had some time to think about it. There was a, a lawyer who was very much involved in the campaign who said, if you do this, I will back you financially. So with that, I decided I would go ahead to sign the paperwork and I just went along with it. Some friends of mine were horrified I'd done it, but I felt safe in doing that. 
I had guarantees that I wouldn't lose my house, that was someone backing me up. Found some courage. Yeah, I guess so. I never wanted to be in front of the cameras, but I was happy to do that. People say I was brave. I didn't feel brave at the time. I just felt this is something I had to do. This is pretty much a working class area. There's lots of state housing in this area. People work and, you know, have their kids and have a, a life. I could see there weren't many people who were willing to step out of their comfort zones or their normal life. I mean, one morning I woke up and there was a line of policemen all the way along the street and they were about four metres apart. And they stayed there all day. They were protecting the fences because people were pushing the fences down constantly. So I think people just found it too overwhelming, too confronting, and they just just hid away in their homes while there was intense activity in the street. And there was it was active for a couple of months when they were bulldozing the bit opposite us. Let's hear from poet Nandi Chinna. Wind. When you undressed last night, nuts and bolts spilled from your pockets, twirling like spinning tops across the floorboards into the corners of the room. You said that the hardware store had run out of spanners, as every day the fences come to repair the night's damage, and every night the ghosts of Banksia and Quenda arrive, dressed in the shadows of moon and cloud, unmake the wire that keeps people out and bulldozers in. In the morning we all agree that the wind was very strong last night, suddenly blowing a howling tempest, strong enough to knock down fences, gentle enough to leave trees standing. Thousands of Western Australian people joined the fight and many of them, including Carol DeBar, maybe most of them, were motivated by love for the plant and animal life there. Yeah, there's some tawny frogmouths that lived not far from my house over the road, a mating pair that I used to look at every day and a, and a number of people in the area knew about these tawny frogmouths so I had an attachment to it. The first week that the bulldozers came, there was maybe two, 250 people lining the fences watching and um, making a noise. Anyway, the bulldozer got to the tree where the tawny frogmouths were sitting because they sleep during the day and the tree went down, the tawny frogmouths flew in the air and the crowd just wailed. They yelled out and, and there was a wave of emotion went all the way down the street and these frogmouths took off and we, we lost them. But a week later the, there was two tawny frogmouth bodies found. That were, they were dead further in the, in the bush on the opposite side. Listening to you, what I'm really struck by is that heart connection that humans have with other animals and how some people anyway will fight for that as strongly as they would fight for themselves. People were quite overwrought during this campaign. There were so many people so distressed by the trees, the animals, the, the, the bush that was being bulldozed. Um, being around them was upsetting. You know, if you'd go into a crowd and you'd feel okay and then there were so many people so distressed and breaking down and crying and people supporting them and pulling them away and protecting them. You know, you couldn't help but not get caught up in that emotion. Yeah, people care. People really care about the, about the trees and the environment and the animals in there. 
What surprised me was that there was people from everywhere came to join this campaign. There were thousands and thousands of people turning up at rallies, turning up at the courts, making flags, getting into the Fremantle parade, um, being on the news, always something going on in the wetlands. When they started bulldozing, when they did this 66 days before the election, even though Colin Barnett knew he was going to lose, he started the bulldozing. I think that motivated people because they were angry. They were angry with him because they were protecting this precious wetland and bushland area. So I'd wake up at 5.30 in the morning, I'd get myself a quick breakfast and I'd go out the door at 6 and I would join whatever rally was happening on that morning. I'd stay there until 8 o'clock, chanting and screaming and yelling and being with hundreds of other people. Then I'd have to go home and get ready and go to work. The more people got involved, the cleverer the campaign got. That's how it seemed to me. It just became a force. It felt like for four months I had blinkers on. There was nothing else in my life. I went to work because I had to, and then when I was at home it was, it was the Row 8 campaign and that was it. And the people I associated with were all involved in the campaign. Other friends just fell by the wayside. Took over your life completely. You told me some great stories about some of the more light-hearted actions that happened during that. <laughs> Every year there's a Rottnest swim from Perth to Rottnest. It's about 25 k's, I think. I've never done it. And it starts at 7 o'clock in the morning and people gather and the Premier launches it. So, of course, Colin Barnett was down there and it happened during election campaign. There was four or five women um, where, where the cameras were, so they enticed him over to get a photo shot and, of course, he came over because he's quite an ego-driven bloke. And so they had jackets on, and when the camera crew was ready, they said, OK, okay, everybody smile, and they took their jackets off, stood side on, and they all had put Libs Lust down their arms. Some of them had stop row eight, and their arms were really visible with these negative messages about the Liberal Party and Colin Barnett, with him right in the middle with his arms around them, smiling. And that went to the eastern states, I think, that photo. So... There was some clever, some really clever stuff that went on towards the end of the campaign, which gave us all hope, because we'd been pretty despondent for a long time, and then it was such a, a hopeful message. We were all, it was funny to watch these things happening. Really, we're coming to bulldozer time, aren't we? That shocking thing where the bulldozers were just brought in. Mm. in this election period, and that's when you found yourself being what you've called yourself an accidental activist. <laughs> Do you want to tell the story about the bulldozers and the... Well, I'm not really an activist. I've, you know, I go to rallies, I sign petitions, but I don't really get that involved. I've certainly never got involved in campaigns like I did with this one. So I did get arrested. I was one of the 300 and something people to, over the four months that got arrested. Uh, however, I never intended to. From day one of the bulldozers coming in, the arrest started. So people were standing in front of bulldozers, they were locking themselves onto fences, and that escalated right to the very end of the campaign. So um, I went to a meeting at the Wetland Centre one night, and I thought it started at seven, and when I got there, the meeting had already started. So I looked around, and I saw one person I knew in the corner group, so I went over and joined that group. And I sat down, and I was listening to what they were talking about, and then I realised... I was in the group that was going to get arrested. <laughs> they decided they were going to get arrested and then they started bringing out the little thumb locks um, and showing us how to use them. So for about 15 minutes, I was sweating. You know, I, I wasn't sure I was going to do this. What am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? 
Anyway, I sat with it, worked through it in my mind, and then I decided I'll just go, I'll just do it with them. They were all women, I'd say, they were middle-aged women. There was about 12 of us, and we stole into the fenced area one night at midnight uh, undercover, and we went into this little section, and we all locked onto a tree, and we were there all night. It was quite a hoot. <laughs> and the, the police discovered us about 5 o'clock in the morning. They were... The police were quite friendly. One of them, we had a really nice policeman, um, and they said, "This is, you know, you can either we can you can choose to unlock now and leave and not get arrested, or we're going to arrest you at daylight and we'll bring the truck in." Well, we all chose to stay, so we all got arrested, taken into the big paddy wagon, which looks like a horse float. We were taken to Burdock Police Station and processed one by one, and um, we had to go to court. We got fines, but we didn't get a record. That that was ten of us, all of us, got arrested that morning. Poet Nandi Chinna. Nanas. Because silver hair shines in the moonlight, we dress in black and cover our heads when we stalk at night in the Banksy woods. The dumped couch is a handy screen Fallen branches, crooked spoons to stir our diversionary recipe. Buckets of cement in each hand, we stagger towards the fence line, becoming statues in the headlights of passing cars, becoming Chewett, Balga, Mary. When I tell the policeman that I'm old enough to be his nana, he snarls, why don't you act like one? Which is what I'm doing mixing and stirring, pouring wet cement into the fence post holes, holding the future from the inside of the compound, railing against extinction from the muted grey space of the paddy wagon. Carol, listening to you, you keep on mentioning women. What are your thoughts on that now, looking back? Well, there were two women in particular. Um, there was Save Billy Wetlands, which was Kate Kelly, and she was involved from the way years before, and she became very prominent and was always our spokesperson on the news. And Kim Dravniex, there were two campaigns running side by side, both stopped trying to stop Row 8, and these women put their lives on hold. But when you went to the meetings, um, I mean, they're sure there was men involved, but I'd say predominantly 80% of the people at the rallies, the meetings, and taking the action were women. There, were, there was women locking onto bulldozers, and it was women, young girls climbing trees and staying in trees for a week and having to be pulled down to stop the bulldozing. It was women in the courts, and it was women out there alongside the fences. It seemed to be a real female-driven campaign. I don't know why. Um, it was, but it, it's there were some strong women in this campaign and they became leaders and everyone looked up to them. But, you know, it seems to be women who are leading the way in the um, protection of our planet and the environment that we live in. It's, um, it's women. Amid, the election happened. Landslide. We decided to have a party at the Hilton Bowling Club. Uh, hundreds of people went. We had a big screen up. By seven o'clock, the election was called and the place just went into uproar. We were dancing and singing and, you know, everybody was on a high. Mark McGowan came on, you know, congratulated everybody and then um, the next day the row eight was scrapped. Hmm. But by that time you were living opposite Desolation Row, really, weren't you? 
Um, so if you can envision, it was probably about 400 metres across a strip of natural bush. It had never been touched. It was beautiful in there. It was full of grass trees and bobtails and bandicoots and uh, gum trees and wattle. And in spring, it was full of wild wisteria. It was just a stunning piece of bush. By the time the election had finished, it, there was just piles of mulch, uh, you know, two or three metre high all the way along the strip. And that's what we were left with. So we're talking 2017, we're talking five years ago. Mm. You and I had a walk there. There's been a lot of regeneration mm. and there's even talk of that being the basis for a wildlife corridor right through to the coast. So the wildlife corridor is its a group of people who their vision is, with the support of the Coburn Council, is to have a strip of natural bush with wildlife in it from the wetlands centre next to Bibra Lake all the way through to the um, ocean. Wetlands to waves, they call it. They've got funding and they've been fundraising and they've got people involved and they've been replanting this strip. Last year they did 60,000 plants on 5Ks of bush. Are you feeling hopeful about that? Yeah, I can see that happening. Probably not not for ne- in the next few years um, because they're only currently working on the 5Ks of bush that was stripped. But then they've got to go beyond that to the beach. But yeah, I can see that maybe in 10 or 20 years that might be a possibility. And when you look back on that time now, what would you say has been the impact on your life of having been involved in that big and successful campaign? I think the biggest impact was a sense of pride of being involved and at the level I got involved with, which I never thought I would do. I went way out of my comfort zone to get involved at that level, as, as did many. When this first came up, I, th- I was thinking I, I'm probably going to have to sell my house and move. can't live next to a highway because it was just over the road from my house. I'm still here and I still walk in the bush every day and I'm probably going to stay here until I retire. If you're really passionate and committed to something and there's enough people around you and, and there's a group that's doing it together, you can do it. We all jumped in and it's something I never thought I would do but thousands of people did that and we did it successfully and we rode along this wave for four months on the energy of others and um, it was an amazing thing to do. I don't know whether I'd ever do it again, I maybe I would. This was an incredible time. It was an intense time, it was exhausting, but it was so much fun. Is there a lesson in there? It's a good question, Nikki. I I think the lesson is to just be aware of what's happening, stay informed politically, which I wasn't, but a lot of people were that were involved in this campaign. I think the lesson is to stay involved in what's happening around you locally and get involved. Um, yeah, don't think you can't do it, because you can. Don't be frightened of learning more about how to do it. Don't be frightened of listening to others and and um, joining up and just going and finding out what's going on. Yeah, get out of your comfort zone. I think that's the lesson. Because if it's happening in your patch, if you don't do something about it, then it'll happen, for sure. If this hadn't happened, there'd be a highway there now in my front garden. Instead of having this beautiful patch of native wildflowers and bush there now that's flourishing after four years of growth... So yeah, get involved. Don't sit back. Carol Barr, who is a Fremantle social worker, she was for a while 
a wetland warrior. And if you'd like to take a different deep dive into that successful campaign which stopped the Row 8 highway destroying five kilometres of precious bush and wetland just near Fremantle, there's a serious book with some great pictures too. It's called Never Again, Reflections on Environmental Responsibility After Row 8. It's published by the UWA Press. Let's give the last word on this campaign to Nandi Chinna. We've heard four poems today from her book, The Future Keepers, published by Fremantle Press, and she refers here to some Siberian birds. They are the many species who migrate to Bibra Lake from Siberia every year. The Law So, this is it. Sixty or so of us standing in the road. The riot squad yelling, move, move! But my feet have become stones cemented into the tarmac. Someone grabs my hand and the police horse staggers into my shoulder. Her sweat and fear smell like my own. When the drilling rig enters the wetlands, Surrounded by officers with tasers and guns. The horse's legs and chest push into my spine, causing me to trip, stand, stumble, fall. The swamp clicks and sighs. The Siberian birds wade into the centre, their beaks piercing the lake's membrane, their law trembling in the mud. That story was produced by Nikki Page, featuring poetry by Nandi China. It was originally aired as part of the show Packed Lunch on Radio Adelaide. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunde and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.